Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. Oh my goodness, you are in for a treat today. In today's episode, I talk with Akhtar Bacha, who is the former Senior Director of Philanthropy at Microsoft and just a social entrepreneur extraordinaire. We talk about many, many, many things. One of them is about building a movement and how that framing of being part of a movement can really be compelling for engaging people in your work. We also talk about how building a movement requires or at least greatly benefits from crisp, compelling messaging. And I just want to acknowledge that that sounds all well and good, and it can be really tough to develop. So in order to combat that, I wrote a book called Pitchfalls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People. And now you can get a free ebook version of this small but mighty book by going to klaxonmarketing.com backslash pitchfalls. So that's C-L-A-X-O-N marketing.com backslash P-I-T. C-H-F-A-L-L-S, klaxonmarketing.com backslash pitchfalls. I recommend you go download your very own copy of this little book. It doesn't take long to read between seven and 10 minutes. It really is short, trying to model the messaging that I recommend in the book. So go to klaxonmarketing.com backslash pitchfalls, get your copy. And now without further ado, let's hop on over to the episode so you can meet Octar. Welcome, listeners, to the Marketing for Good podcast. I'm Erica Mills Barnhart, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Akhtar Badsha, who is, I'm going to read you as I do, his bio. And so it says, he is an innovation catalyst, educator, philanthropist, social entrepreneur, artist, author, and public speaker. He is the founder and CEO of Catalytic Innovators Group, a consulting firm focused on accelerating social impact. His current work focuses on issues related to democratizing innovation, disruptive technology, and catalytic philanthropy. He is the curator of Accelerating Social Transformation. He is the author of Purpose Mindset, How Microsoft Inspires Its Employees and Alumni to Change the World, forthcoming fall 2020 through the HarperCollins Leadership Series. Dr. Badshaw is a distinguished practitioner and senior lecturer at the University of Washington's Evans School of Public Policy and Governance, as well as with the University of Washington Bothell's Business School. He teaches classes on social enterprise, new models for, for mission-based business, funding the nonprofit sector, and global business strategies. And I am delighted that you are here with me today, Akhtar. We have known each other, let's just call it for a while. Shall we just call it a while? Quite a long time. I actually was trying to figure this out. I, th- I think that we met when you were at Microsoft and I was at Manpower or about there, right? Yep. I think that that's about right. So, so that's going a ways back. 
And one thing I know for sure about you is that you do not fit into any neat, tidy boxes or categories. You defy them. <laughs> so I want to talk eventually about your forthcoming book because that's so exciting. And then your work in philanthropy and social enterprise and many other things. But first, will you give readers a bit of the color commentary version of how you went from, I mean, your formal education is as an architect, although, I mean, through the PhD level. How did you go from being an architect to being in philanthropy and social innovation in your current space? Agat, thank you very much for asking me to be part of this podcast. I'm very excited that you are doing this. I think it's just absolutely needed at this time. I think I wanted to be an architect. I did become an architect. I practiced as an architect. I taught architecture for a decade at MIT, and I wanted to build tall buildings and wear round glasses and a polo neck shirt and talk in funny tones. I've never seen you in a polo. What happened? Yeah, and it didn't pan out that way. <laughs> no, it didn't. I instead went into teaching architecture for developing countries and things led to other things and opportunities came my way from the UN to help start a nonprofit focused on cities and mega cities. I did that. My wife had joined Microsoft in New York at that time. And when she moved here, I moved to Seattle and started another nonprofit focused on bridging the digital divide with a mutual friend of yours, Craig Smith, at that time. And that then brought me into Microsoft to run their philanthropy program. So in some ways, I'm an accidental philanthropist, social innovator, Nonprofit guy, something that is actually not qualified to do anything except architecture, but I don't do that. So, so here I am, which is why I don't fit into any box. No, you don't. And I love that about you. Eventually, near the end of the podcast, I want to come back to your, your artistic streak as well. But let's talk about your book, The Purpose Mindset. So we are colleagues at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. So through that, I mean, I know you've been working really hard on this book, but I almost also realize I don't know that much about it, but I'm super intrigued by this idea of the me to we mindset. So will you explain to me and the listeners what you mean by that and how you landed on that framework? So I've been wanting to write this book, which on Microsoft's philanthropy, especially its employee giving campaign and the amount of good it has done in the world for many years. And it's always great to have an idea in your head because it's a great cocktail conversation that you want to write a book and you don't really have to work to do anything. So you can keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. But I had a one pager and I kept floating it around and eventually it landed with Harper Collins, and they said, go write it. And then I had to figure out, okay, just talking about Microsoft's philanthropy is not that interesting. It is interesting, but it is not that interesting. But it is how it has transformed the employees who have actually participated in the giving campaign, and how do we actually want to look 
at creating a society that moves from the focus on the individual to the collective and to society as a whole. And purpose mindset kind of became the frame through which I started viewing how these hyper growth mindset individuals that were super competitive in their business world, because of participating in the Microsoft employee giving campaign, were able to move into the philanthropy space and bring some positive aspects of the growth mindset, but slowly understand that to succeed in helping societies move forward, growth is only one aspect, but purpose is actually a bigger driver. And how do you move to that? So the book captures that. And I think that in today's immediate circumstances that we are in, we are actually seeing why that is so important. Yeah. So for listeners, we're recording this while sheltered in place during COVID-19. And because of this sheltering in place and because of this virus, none of us individually can actually get out of it. It is only through collective social action are we going to survive if you want to be dramatic about it. Yeah, I don't think that that's overstating it. I mean, I feel like we're going to. Right. History, History would say we're going to. But what's interesting, I would love your thoughts on this is, I totally see that point about we're only going to get out of it as a collective. I mean, that the only path forward is through community and we're seeing that, but that's such a weird thing to think about when we're all sitting at home alone, very individual, very isolated. So I think I'm definitely seeing this, you know, I still like communicate with people like we're communicating, but you know, just folks feeling so alone and I think having a hard time getting into the mindset that there is going to be this collective movement and community as the path forward. I see that as a volition, or I'm hearing it as a volition from people, but, I, but I'm also hearing this like, I don't know how that's really going to work out or happen on the other side. But let's look at just, just one example, right? There is the shortage of masks. And there's this million mask challenge. Yeah, yeah. And there are thousands of people around the country, not just around the country, around the world, that are in their own places sewing masks. My mom among them, sewing her little heart out. I, my wife is sewing it. And that is contributing to the collective well-being. And individual actions are then becoming collective impact. And that is happening not just masks. It's people stepping up and cooking food and having it delivered to hospitals. It is restaurants who are shut down are saying, we will actually cook food and deliver it to frontline workers. I love those stories. It is people actually going in and supporting food shelters. It is people picking up the phone and saying, I will go deliver groceries to somebody yeah. because they cannot come out of the house and they are locked in. So there is this, even in this isolation, we have found ways to do things in a collective fashion. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make, is that how do we move from the me mindset into the we mindset? 
And when we move into the we mindset, we actually discover purpose. And the reason why somebody is sewing these masks is not because they want to be individually safe. Sure, sure. Which, of course, they want to, but because it gives them purpose, whereby doing it, it is actually helping society as a whole, and it is contributing to our well-being. And I think that's the important piece that we are discovering. And it kind of validates some of the points that I was trying to make in my book through these individual profiles, where it has now actually become a collective action. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm hearing, if I'm tracking, is that people feel the greatest sense of purpose when they are in community, when they are in the we mindset. Absolutely. But it is also very interesting, right? So when I was at Microsoft, people would come to me all the time and say, I have passion to make change. You've got to hire me. And I would kind of shake my head at them. And I said that, you know, why do you need me to hire you to go make change? Make change. Mm -hmm. And don't talk to me about your passion. Tell me about your purpose. Why do you wake up? What is the purpose for you to wake up? What change do you want to see in the world? Do you see people conflating those or thinking that passion is the same as purpose? How do you distinguish them? Absolutely. Absolutely. People see passion as the same as purpose. And part of what I am trying to distinguish is passion is still very much personal growth and your personal desire. Purpose actually takes that and applies it to community well-being. Oh, okay. So, so passion to you is a very individual thing. Correct. And purpose actually makes takes it outside, which doesn't mean you should not have passion. I'm not saying that at all. Absolutely, you've got to have passion. But if you want to make societal change, that passion then needs to move from individual satisfaction to community good. So it is really what Robert Reich talks about in his book, A Former Secretary of Labor, how do you extend the common good? Yeah, yeah. So part of the show, obviously, is about marketing for good. And one of the ways in which I define marketing for good is that everybody involved is also made whole or it's good for them, including you know employees, you know people serving on your board, your volunteers, your clients, your customers, because so often marketing is just thought of as an external force right? But there's the forcing function behind it, which is oftentimes the employees for the most part. So internal alignment is as important as external engagement as sort of a core premise. And I'm curious in what way can having a purpose mindset possibly create internal alignment on teams? I think that's where marketing becomes so important, right? So you can either market a product and that's good, or you can actually market a purpose. And purpose is in some ways really collectively thinking about, are you marketing something bigger than a product or a self, which others coalesce around, right? So why did the million mass challenge work? Or in that same way, the ice bucket challenge worked. Right, right. Because people saw a purpose attached to what was a marketing campaign. 
Do you think that that's always about purpose? I mean, it strikes me that sometimes that's about identity and wanting to be associated with a certain identity. And absolutely. So, so there are a number of different factors that actually drive into purpose, right? So eventually it is about being part of a movement. It is about wanting to see positive change. It is about looking at it from a abundance lens. Mm -hmm. They're saying small people can collectively do much more than one big effort. It is about moving beyond just feeling morally good to actually having a sense of empathy and compassion. Oh, yeah. So was it, it was last year, the year before at your, so one of the programs that you run is called Accelerating Social Transformation, associated with the Evans School at the University of Washington. And I think in one of those sessions, you, you were like very worked up and you said something like, I don't care. I'm going to paraphrase because I think you said it even more strongly. I don't care about your passion. I care about compassion. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I'll come back to me now. <laughs> so, so part of, you know, what, if you look at this notion of, you know, you feel charity towards an individual, which is just your altruistic sense that comes out because we are humans. We see somebody suffering, we say we need to help them. Sure. Sometimes you feel that, sometimes you don't. Empathy, you move where you are shifting the way you view the world and you start becoming an empathetic person. And generally, empathy is around people that you know. Compassion actually takes that same sense of empathy and applies it to everybody around the world. You don't think we can have collective empathy? No, we can have collective empathy, but compassion from an individual perspective is a very hard thing to achieve, which is why you only see few people achieve total compassion, which is the Dalai Lama and others who... It's a high bar. It's a real high bar. It's a very high yeah. bar, so mm -hmm. we might never reach it, but we can get to empathy and by applying purpose, you're actually then, in a simple way, how do you extend what you think is your personal benefit to become a collective benefit? I'm not saying that you should become a martyr and you should become a Dalai Lama or you should become a saint. But what I'm saying is in everything that you do, let's make sure that whatever we are doing is also extending the good for somebody else. And as long as we are doing that, then we are actually instigating purpose. And we are moving from the me mindset, which is me first, to a we mindset. And in the book, do you talk about, I mean, I'm thinking of Beth Cantor's book, The Happy Healthy Nonprofit. And what I really appreciate about her work in general, but that book in particular, is her ability to stay focused on the need for individual health and self-care with in service to this you know bigger mission and other things so i mean what i see is a lot of mission-minded people listeners of the show who are almost so much in service to others that they neglect the they neglect the me you know for the benefit of the we so do you address that in the book at all i and i didn't and i think that's part of the shortcoming of the book i mean well there's point, your next book yeah, and you know, at some point you're gonna run out of time yeah, and, yeah, group, yeah. and there is a deadline and the editor basically said that's it. You were handing me whatever it is right. and it just fails right. off. Right. But that is a very important point. 
And I think it's actually a very critical point that we should not, yes, there are certain people who will give themselves selflessly. Mm -hmm. But for most of us, if you want to add value, self-care and what Beth is talking about, or even what Alex Count is talking about in his book, is about self-care. You have to do that. But I kind of look at it and say, the only way you can actually achieve good is first you've actually looked after yourself. I saw a friend of mine has actually talked about this. In this crisis, he's come up with this four concentric rings of circle for his business. Say that again? Four concentric ring circles. And basically what he's talking about is the first and foremost for the company to survive, we all need to make sure that you and your family are safe and healthy. It's like when the mask, when the airline says, you know, if the mask drops, put that on first for yourself and then Mm-hmm. your child, otherwise you will not be able to put it onto the child. So, so that's the first thing, right? We have to look after ourselves first, otherwise we're just not going to be able to extend the good. Yeah. The common good. So that's what he's kind of saying. Look after yourself first, then look after your family, then look after your customers, then look after the business. And business will happen. So, so in some ways, I thought that was a very interesting way of kind of extending out what I'm talking about, is that the only way you can actually look at what am I doing for society, society, you're not outside of society, you're within it, you have to be within that center. So unless you're not looking at your well-being, you're not really looking at the well-being of anybody else. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a really important message. And I think it's a message that, you know, people who come naturally to mission struggle with a lot. So I just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a drum I'm going to keep beating because, you know, when I think about internal alignment and when I work with organizations or even when I see our students, but, you know, mainly in an organizational context where you're in teams, it's something that that I see managers and leaders really struggle with is, you know, how do I balance this kind of personal professional line? And I, you know, I want to talk about self-care and I want folks to, to really prioritize that. And I also want them to get stuff done. Yeah. So it's just a, a an ongoing thing that rattles around in my brain. No, and I think it's a very important thing to have it rattle around everybody's brain is yeah. when do we actually go for a walk, go to the spa, if that's what you want to do. Yeah. And that that's not a luxury. I mean, the other thing is that self-care, and before I say this, I want to say that this plays out differently due to positionality and privilege. So I want to acknowledge that. Self-care sounds so bougie, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do some self-care. And by the way, that self-care is different than self-compassion. That's correct. Absolutely. Right. So you can self-care yourself all you want. And actually, if you don't have that self-compassion, it's, you know, you just your your toes and your fingernails or whatever your thing is that that constitutes self-care, you know, it's just a wrapper for that deeper work. So anyway, I we won't we I could hop really far down this bunny trail. No, but I, but clearly. There is there is one point that you raised which I actually just want to kind of just push a little bit on, which I think is very, very important, is that a lot of the stuff that we are talking about comes because we sit in some sense of privilege. Yes, we do. 
And what I think people need to understand is when you feel vulnerable or you feel beaten up, pick up the phone and call somebody else who may be able to actually provide you with some level of self-comfort. Yeah. You know, if we didn't see it before, connection is the path to compassion is, you know, we're all living it. Yeah. We're all living it. And I'll just give you an example. And this has got nothing to do with, I know I'm good or I'm not good. You know, one of our ASD colleagues sent me a note saying, hey, Akhtar, I need some computers because everything has to go online. My students don't have computers. Can you help me get computers? I, I'm glad he called me because it just so happened I was talking to somebody else and this colleague of ours from Avenard and she was saying, you know, I'm collecting computers from Avenard to donate to nonprofit organizations because I know they need this. Mm. All I had to do was connect the two and he got his machines. You, you are one of the world's best connectors. It's amazing. But I think we can all be because we all are actually talking to somebody or the other always. Yeah. So I may be good at connecting people with technology because that's my world, but somebody else might be for something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the message that we need to talk to each other much more than we do. Yeah. Again, we, we, we think about connection so much in terms of connecting with donors, connecting with volunteers, you know, connecting very transactionally, not only transactionally, but externally when it comes to marketing. Right. And I, I'm really hoping, I mean, I am an optimist at heart, deep down. And I'm also, so as such, I, I'm always looking for the silver lining because otherwise I just get, you know, I go to a dark place. And I feel like, and I hope that one of the things that comes out of this is that we will be better at reaching out and connecting and see the, see the value of it internally, not just externally as like, you know, not just externally, but internally and, and in a really interpersonal way. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about technology. So you gave a TED Talk in 2011. And in that you said technology has fundamentally changed the way we experience each other. And you were talking about disruptive technology. I would love to hear what you were seeing in that regard leading up to COVID-19 and then what you're seeing now as we're in the thick of it. So when I was talking about my TED Talk, it was coming from the perspective, and I, I actually think it's playing out now. I obviously did not ever imagine the situation at all. Yeah, doctor, I have to say, I rewatched it, but I was there that day yeah. that you gave that TED Talk, and it was so, it was as if you were prescient. It was eerie how much of what you were talking about, I don't know, just sitting there sheltered in place. Like, it was really interesting. Listeners should definitely go listen to that TED Talk. It's spot on. Thank you. I was basically looking at it from my perspective of having work or unwittingly thrown into this field of bridging the digital divide. When I came into this field, I was a Luddite. My kids were laughing at me because they said, how the heck can you go around the world telling people how to bridge the digital divide when you are the divide? You have no idea how to turn on a computer. You have no idea how to use a mouse. <laughs> all you do is shout mom all the time. But what I saw was that 
we could still take a phone and a computer and teach people how to use it in the most fundamental basic ways. But as we were seeing technology evolve and technology become more and more complex, and you start seeing artificial intelligence and machine learning, the ability for a poor person to actually understand and utilize that is next to impossible. Yeah. Unless you have the bridge makers, the people that are actually going to connect. And that's what I was talking about in the talk is that we need to do that because that's how even telemedicine today, I had to go talk to my doctor and it was telemedicine mm -hmm. on a video. I'm talking to you on a video. I am connecting to friends on a video. I'm doing my class on a video. I'm having all social interactions, having to use Zoom or Teams or Google, whatever you know we use. And suddenly, social has become the most important thing that is driving us. And this technology has become the fabric in which we are actually being able to connect. And just think about this person that is actually locked up on their own without any access to anything. They're now completely disconnected mm -hmm. because they're only connection was I can go to the village well and have a conversation. That does not exist anymore today if you're following the guidelines of not going out of the house. So I think that's the challenge for us, right? So technology has completely shifted. And again, it's put people in positions of even more privilege. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Right? And I'm seeing that, and I'm quite sure you're seeing that play out in your classroom. Absolutely. I have a particular class that is refusing to turn on their videos at all. Because half of my students have lost their jobs. Half of them don't have proper internet connection. The other half are looking after siblings or kids or something, and they don't want to get disturbed. So they keep the sound off, and they keep their videos off. And then there is another class that I teach. Every single student keeps their videos and sound on. They have their own bedrooms or enclosed area in which they can communicate with. It's in the same institution. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, and I'm here trying to decide how do I get across to kids who have basically decided that they will not show me their face. Oh my God, that, that breaks my heart. Right, so I have to actually now figure out how am I communicating to this individual without having a way to even look at them. Right. This is going Are to be here? not as if it's suddenly going to change. Yeah. And that's, that's our reality, right? But I need to, that's the person I'm focused on. And therefore, it is only my voice and my silly face that they're looking at. And that's all they're dependent on to get their learning. So, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't change that. No, we can't. And at the same time, we can be profoundly aware of it and what it and what it means. I had a chat with my students after reading an article that 
again, Beth Cantor turned me on to that was about um, our brains and the reason that we're all so exhausted on Zoom calls. And I found it fascinating. I did not realize this, that like our brains are so elegant in some ways and then kind of dumb in others. So the brain, like as I'm looking at you, it is as if we are in the same room together. Right. And so if somebody's really close to the screen, our brains are like, you're in my, you are in my personal bubble. And it, I just didn't understand that. Right. I was getting to the end of every day and being like, oh my God, I'm so tired, but I'm not in more meetings. But then it really made sense that, you know, we have, especially as North Americans, we have a wide personal bubble. Right. Yeah. And everybody's popping your bubble. It's very tiring. I thought that was really interesting. So I talked to my students about it and I said, I just read this article and I learned this. And so, especially for introverts, and again, this is a an internal team dynamic thing, you know, for listeners who have teams you're managing, you know, your introverts are with her. I mean, they, this is just slaying them that their personal bubbles mean constantly poked. And, and meanwhile, extroverts are like, I need more, I need more, you know, like it's quite a lot to manage from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, you know, my only self-care for survival with this, as you know, I'm just, for me, this is like, insane. I yeah. can't move around. I can't connect. I cannot hug somebody. I cannot touch. And the only thing the only thing that keeps me sane is that every single day, I make sure I go out for a walk for an hour on yeah. my own. Me too. At the end of the day, I do it at the end of every single day. And that's the only thing that, you know, and I've adjusted to it. But again, I mean, I can't look at it and say the only reason you've adjusted to it is because you are in a position of privilege. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Because, you know, we can walk around yeah. with masks. I really, the masks totally freak me out. I don't know. Anyway, they freak me out. I also, I was going to note, well, a couple of things. One, I've taken to making Zoom a verb because somehow it makes me feel so much better to say, shall we Zoom rather than shall we meet by Zoom? I don't know why. It helps yeah. me to get a verb. <laughs> Um, but the other thing is how striking, I mean, think, so we're in the third week of the quarter for us at the University of Washington, and like three weeks ago, Zooming was really disruptive, and just how quickly, we may not be accepting it, we may not like it, but we have adjusted to it. I mean, I, I can think of a few other more dramatic examples of like the rate at which disruptive has become the norm in terms of a exactly. technology, not just, I mean, we keep saying Zoom, we happen to be on Zoom. There are obviously other platforms, but video conversations and conferencing, I mean, it's striking. Let me just actually, but to, to look about this whole issue of disruptive technologies, I think it's actually extending it to so many other things, right? Again, the acceptance and the ability to use disruptive technology today is only because you are in a position of privilege. Yep. I still like to go shopping for my groceries. My kids think I'm completely insane doing that. They're only ordering everything online. But to be able to do that, you have to be in a power of privilege where you are actually willing to pay First, you have the technology, you have the capacity, you have the ability to go get to the shops and you're willing to pay 40, 50 bucks more yeah. for your groceries. Yeah. I, so that's one piece. I can have a video conference with my doctor, but so many other people can't even go see a doctor because they don't. So, so the notion of disruption and then how do we actually make it equal? How do you extend it out? 
is really where our challenge lies. And I think what, I mean, what I'm, I'm saying is that my technology friends, what I'm actually trying to tell them is, don't tell me how to do more with something. Just go out and help somebody utilize this technology in a way that they can understand. Yeah, yeah. I had Hanson Hossein on the show recently, and he, you know, he was saying that COVID-19 and coronavirus is, has been the great equalizer. And I said, I kind of get that, you know, in some ways, but I, I actually, on balance, feel like it has been the great amplifier of of inequity uh, and and all the all the forms that it that it takes. So we we had a little chit chat, a little back and forth chit chat about, about that, as one does with Hanson. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about disruptive technology specifically in the context of marketing. So if you were somebody in you know who had purpose, both passion and purpose, and was compassionate, and you were at the helm of an organization. And you had to think about marketing. Which, what technology trends would you be looking at? So one of the things that I kind of talk about is from a marketing, and I mean I kind of look at it from the perspective as how do you build movements? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because movement is the greatest form of getting your message across. Right? It's the most. It's egalitarian to an extent but it is also disruptive and it's also dispersed. So if you think about, let's just take Uber as an example. Okay. For a lot of people, Uber, Uber is seen as a technology platform that is making ride sharing easy. However, what Uber has done from a marketing perspective is that it has actually created a movement. It has created a movement of committed individuals who will rationally know that every time they're actually taking a ride, they're jipping the person off who's actually driving the car, are willing to do that because they are so convinced that it is actually benefiting the gig economy. Mm. And that's a marketing movement that has been created, which is messaging that has completely walked our heads. And it's done it because of the me mindset. I am benefiting, I can get everything on demand, I don't have to worry about anything, it's clean, safe, whatever it is, right? So how do you take that and think about it from a social impact space? And how do you flip what we are doing in terms of creating movements? So I'll give you an example. I was giving this talk to African women entrepreneurs And one of them said that, look, I've created a business in Nigeria, in Lagos, delivering healthy food to working class parents. You can see yourself as two ways, because she described how she gets on a motorbike and delivers the food. She's a startup. She's doing this. She's all the everything. And then, you know, she's just scrambling the whole time. And I said that you can look at yourself and say, I am a glorified motorcyclist who's just delivering food. Or you can actually see yourself as I'm creating a healthy eating movement. Where do you think you will get more stickiness? Mm-hmm. What did she say, Akhtar? No, so she actually completely understood that. 
But I said that what you're doing in my mind is not food delivery. You're actually creating a healthy movement, healthy eating movement. And you're actually focusing on working parents who can actually understand this middle class working parents and saying, I am going to provide you with healthy eating food, which is good for you and your kids. And it actually saves you the time coming back from work to cook. Mm -hmm. You get that messaging out. Now you get thousands of women actually coalescing around you as a movement because they're committed to healthy eating versus you as a delivery service. Yep. That's a great example. At the end of the day, you're doing the exact same thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the mechanics of it are the same. But how do you actually think about yourself as to who you are? Are you creating a movement or are you providing a service? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very provocative question for, you know, whether or not you're a nonprofit, a foundation, social enterprise, you know, whatever the tax status. And and I would say from a marketing perspective, it is one of the, the big missteps is that folks, because they get so close to it, so there's like a very rational, logical reason for this, you're so close to it that like you know, having your gaze go up to this idea of we're not just about, you know, the mechanics of whatever it is. We're not just about beds or meals or whatever. That's super important. But this is part of laddering up to a bigger movement and staying, you know, I refer to it as staying focused on the why, being, you know, grounded in your why, because that's what's compelling. Right. This is the, and this is, you know, classic marketing jargon. This is the features versus benefits conversation, by the way. Um, We buy benefits, right? We. And then we back it up with features. And in this case, the benefit is a larger purpose. Yeah. Right? Similar. Such a great example. You know, I had a similar conversation I had with another, you know, women entrepreneur from South Africa. I mean, you know, she's created these products like soap and other, you know, beauty products using beeswax. And so she's going into this whole natural products. And again, I said that, you know, are you selling soap or are you selling, you know, a shifting lifestyle? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is how lifestyle brands make it, right? So, so those are the kinds of conversations, you know, where I think about how you think about marketing that then attaches purpose to it, which then moves you out from the mechanics of what you're serving as a product, but actually what is the end goal of what you want to see happen? Right. Yeah. I think talking to also talking about features for people, you know, with mission and purpose, I think feels much safer. Also, it's like, well, I'm going to tell you about the way in which we're doing. I'm going to tell you that I'm getting on a motorbike, right? To go back to your other example, because it feels big and a little bit scary and vulnerable to say, we're actually on a mission to this much bigger thing. So I think part of it is like this emotional tug. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and for entrepreneurs, it's very hard to step back. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, she's kind of looking at her and saying, yeah, okay, you're telling me all this nonsense. You know, I've got to figure out how to pay my bills the next day. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I have to get onto the damn motorcycle. Yeah. Can I, so can I tell you one funny COVID anecdote since yes. we're, you know, we're sheltered in place? So I've run out of a lot of things in my kitchen. But the thing that I just ran out of before this call, because I made a cup of tea, Earl Grey tea with honey and milk, which is my go-to, and I'm out of honey. And I realized, <laughs> I knew you would appreciate that. <laughs> that's the thing that's going to get me to go to the, to the market. 
<laughs> it's not any of the other things on the list. I'm like, oh, I can get by without that. But my honey, I'm out of honey. And it's like my, yeah. my big crisis of the day. <laughs> and that's that's what we struggle with, right? So, so I think what your podcast and what some of the other folks are doing is how do we help even in our space of social impact, recognize the bigger effort of what somebody is doing and shine that light on them. Yeah. And in doing so, it actually increases their self-worth and well-being. That I am not just delivering food. I'm actually completely shifting the way in which people eat. Yeah. And I would really invite people who are listening to, you know, just begin by wondering about that. One of the things on the show that I talk about is a lot is you have to change how you think about marketing before you change how you're doing marketing. If you just start with the doing, you're going to keep perpetuating the status quo, which for most mission motivated organizations and people isn't going that well, actually. So I think that, I mean, this is such a specific, tangible, concrete mental shift that you know, somebody could do immediately upon, you know, hearing it from you is like, what's the movement that you're a part of? Not what are the brass tacks of, of what you're doing? So I love that. I, I don't know if you have heard me say this before, probably not, because we haven't seen each other since I looked up the, the history of the words motivation and inspiration. <laughs> so you know how I look up the history words, yes. a, little, a little personality glitch I have. So motivation, the history is kind of how it is today. It's about action. But inspiration, I learned, is actually originally meant to breathe in, right? So when you put these two things together, it makes sense you need both inspiration and motivation because you need breath in order to take action, okay? So I said at the beginning, in addition to your many other things, you're an artist. And you don't have to answer this question from that perspective, but I, but I will say I'm particularly interested to see how you answer it, which is I would love to hear what inspires you and also what keeps you motivated to do this work? So the painting behind me is the one that I've done. Oh, I always wondered that. So, you know, I've always, I've always painted, art has always been part of my psyche makeup. As an architect, you learn to draw, you learn to build things, you learn to create, and it has always stayed with me. Mm. And, I actually have no vision when I start a canvas. I put something down and then it kind of recreates itself into something. Sometimes it are, it's just these demons in my head that come out. <laughs> and, you know, I've actually cleaned up this table, which actually behind me, which has the, the vases, is actually my art table. Oh. And my canvas and my artwork and my paints all sit there because I have unfinished pieces of work that sit there. And there is something that I've not touched now for a year and a half because I've been so engrossed in this book. So at some point now, I'm gonna go back and start painting, but because of the Zoom classes, my wife said, clean up your clutter from the back. <laughs> the students don't see all the mess behind. So in some ways, I actually live with it. And it comes to me when it comes to me. There are times when I'm very prolific and I will do five, six canvases in a short period of time. And then something will sit in front of me for a year, year and a half. I'll hate it, hate it, hate it. 
I keep looking at it and one day I'll walk in and I'll say, I know exactly what I need to do here. That's so cool. And so it's my weird makeup. I mean, I, I have no idea where these things come from, but they come. Mm-hmm. But it is very critical for my self-being. Yeah, yeah. To do this. And writing is also a very creative process. So I think teaching is also a very creative process. Yeah. So creativity, even an entrepreneur is very creative because they have to come up with. So creativity is always there. It's always coming out. Because I have this eclectic makeup, I need creativity coming out in multiple forms rather than one single form. Mm, Which would be really important to know about yourself. Which is why I've never stuck to doing one thing in my life. Well, Akhtar, it's working for you. You do many, many, many amazing things in the world. If people want to learn more about the amazing things that you're doing, where would you suggest that they go? They can go to my website. AkhtarBadshah.com. They can go to Catalytic Innovators Group. Just put in my name. I'll pop up in many different places. You'll find all sorts of random stuff I've done. What's your favorite social channel to interact with people on? Um, I. You don't have one, do you? You like all of them. I, I use <laughs> Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. <laughs> you can actually communicate with me through Twitter, after bad, LinkedIn, Facebook, email me, afterb at outlook.com. People call me, people find my number from random places. There was somebody who called me up and said, Hey, I need to talk to you because I was told you're the only one that can help me. They found you. Yeah, they just found me. And this is actually from Chief Seattle because they wanted help in setting up a social enterprise for them. It's great. Well, I love your eclecticness and all that it produces. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. And stay healthy, stay safe. I'm working on it. Get the honey. (laughs) I'm going to go out and get my honey now. All right. Thanks, Akhtar. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening, and thanks for making our world a better place.